the Bible reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, it will be on the screen, and if you've got one of the Church Black Bibles, page 1771. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Good morning again. Um, before I get into it, um, I do just want to say thank you. And that's because I mentioned before that the Bible College has a very important part to play uh, in training up future gospel workers, but so does the church. Uh, in this case, uh, I'm preaching to you this morning uh, rather than Chris, who has preached hundreds, probably thousands more sermons than I have, uh, and instead of Mark, who's preached dozens and possibly hundreds more sermons than I have. So um, I trust that uh, the Spirit of God is going to help us to get something out of God's Word, even though it's me that's speaking to you this morning. Uh, but I'm really grateful to Trinity Church Aldgate for just giving me this chance, because it's a way for me to practice a skill which I hope to use to serve the church in the future. Um, so in a way, we're partnering in that, and I'm really grateful for it. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. So, how do you know who is filled with the Spirit? It's an important question. After all, Christians know that the Holy Spirit is our lifeblood. When I first became a Christian, uh, down at Trinity City, I sat under a team of preachers and leaders who were careful and thorough exegetes. They knew God's Word inside out. And the gathering uh, always followed along carefully in the Bible, checking every word that they were hearing. And I thought, these people must be spiritual and then I went home to the Sunshine Coast uh, on holidays and I went around the corner to a nearby church 
It's actually the first place I ever heard the gospel clearly uh, taught many years prior. And things are a little different there. Services start uh, with about half an hour of singing. There's lights are low, people sway and dance. Uh, and the musicians, they just they lead this time of singing amongst the gathering uh, really spontaneously. It's a lovely feeling. These people were engaged with God in a different way. And I wondered, is this true spirituality? Even if you're not a Christian, but you're here today in a church thinking about Jesus and about the Bible and faith, then spirituality is obviously important to you too. So how can we know who is spiritual? That's where the Apostle Paul takes us in this chapter. Last week, Chris explained in chapter 1 how the church in Corinth was rife with disunity. The body of Christ was being torn apart from within. The solution, the way to unity, is the foolish message of the cross. If you're a Christian here today, of whatever flavour, then you probably don't have any problem with this claim. I think we can all agree this is the right place for the Apostle to start his letter. Christ is indisputably supreme. But one of the immediate practical questions is who do we follow in human terms? It's important to think about this, because even though Christ is supreme, He is not here physically to lead us. He's here by His Spirit. So we need to know who has it and how it works so that we can make sure that we're being led by Christ. In this chapter, Paul turns from the foolish message to its spirit-filled bearers. First, he presents himself to the Corinthians as an example of one who is filled with the Spirit. And then following this, he helps us to recognise others who are also filled with the Spirit. The question was clearly a live one for the Corinthians. The church there was filled with philosophers and orators and very intellectual people. It was filled with healers and prophets and miracle workers and so forth. And there was confusion about who to look to amongst all of these options. We all know this is an equally live issue for us here at Trinity Church Aldgate today. So as we do every week, uh, one way or another, let's invite the Spirit of the Lord Jesus to help us to get what He is saying to us this morning. Please join me as I pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, please send amongst us this morning a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of grace and of humility, so that we might all be more firmly established in your mighty word and in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in the first five verses, Paul holds himself out to the Corinthians as an example of true spirituality. He wants the Corinthians to see that it has two components. There's his message and there's his manner as its messenger. First, the message or the testimony which he brought them. He has laboured this in chapter one, as we heard last week, and then he sums it up here in verse two. He says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And second, Paul's manner. Because it's not just about content. It's not just about the truth somehow disconnected from reality, from the way we live. Let's look at what Paul doesn't do first. Verse 1, 
when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And verse four, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians getting caught up in his presentation. He doesn't want them to get distracted in any way whatsoever from what he's actually saying. But maybe you're thinking, actually, Paul sounds pretty eloquent here. Well, all human communication has to be intelligible, right? So I don't want us to confuse it with that. In the end, Paul's message is clear. Nothing matters except Jesus Christ crucified. We are not distracted. Let's now look at what Paul does do. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Paul arrives at Corinth, having been imprisoned, flogged within an inch of his life, pretty much lynched and run out of town everywhere he goes. Corinth is the biggest city in Greece at this time. It's an opulent trade hub, and it's a cultural melting pot, maybe something like Singapore today. It's a place where image and reputation matter. It's filled with the rich, the powerful, the beautiful. And then there's Paul. He's a frail, dishevelled old man. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, people say of Paul, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person. He is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says of himself, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh to torment me. We don't know what this thorn is. It could be a physical affliction, perhaps a terrible limp or a disfigured face. Or it could be psychological damage. It could be post-traumatic stress or anxiety from everything that he's uh, been coping with for years and decades. So he doesn't fit in amongst the movers and shakers of Corinth. Why would anybody listen to this pathetic man and his pathetic message? Paul begged God to take away the thorn in his flesh. And God famously replies, back in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians here in verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul preaches nothing but Christ crucified. It's a message about a Galilean peasant who's rejected by his own people and then executed by the Romans. And Paul's very manner embodies the foolishness and the weakness of Jesus' example. So the Corinthians, as the Corinthians look for a human to lead them in the way of Christ, who should they look to? One who is, verse 4, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And how will they know? Because that person will cling to the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they will actually embody the humility, the selflessness and the sacrificial service that points people to that message. 
It's not easy. But this is the first and the greatest ongoing work of the Spirit in a believer. Let's think about what it means to know nothing, as Paul says in verse 2. What does that mean for us? When the message of Jesus Christ crucified is communicated to us, as I hope it frequently is in our church, what does it mean for there to be nothing else? Does it mean no style, no variety, no creativity? Does it mean no bands, no kids' talks, no fun and no nonsense? Should our services be dull and monotonous affairs so that we don't risk detracting from the gospel? I'm guessing you don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so either. But why? Here's what I think. When Paul emulates Christ crucified, he emulates his character. It's the character of the Son of God who took on flesh and who humbled himself to death. We all want to develop a Christ-like character, but this is a different thing to personality. Paul is still himself. He's still the man God made him to be in many ways, but it doesn't detract from his gospel message. We can both be ourselves and emulate the character of Christ, because personality and character are not the same thing, and they don't always clash. God has made humanity, and so also the church, with a staggering amount of diversity. And praise God for that. Because actually, as God in His power wrangles godliness from every single one of us, but without flattening who He has made us to be, without eliminating all of that diversity that He made us with in the first place, I actually think that the essential truth about Jesus Christ and Him crucified is actually made all the clearer. This life-giving message is protected from being reduced to some boring, lifeless, legalistic blueprint or mould that we have to all be forced into so that we can feel like we're spiritual or something. God preserves who we are whilst making us more like Christ. There's another way we might misunderstand the nothing that Paul is talking about here. We might think it's about the content of the message. We could get this wrong if we think Christ crucified uh, sounds like a standard evangelical tract, a message for me about my personal salvation that, that we mustn't add anything else to. That's not quite what Paul says here. It includes that. But let's break this down. We have Jesus, that is, God made flesh, and everything tied up in that massive idea. We have Christ, that is, God's prophesied King, who is to usher in an undying kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace and joy and beauty. And then finally, we have crucified. Philippians 2 puts it this way, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 is saying that the crucifixion of Jesus reveals the very nature of God. And yes, it washed away my sins. It also made a public spectacle of Satan, robbing him of all of his power. And it also showed the world what true power and what true leadership really looks like. So there's really quite a lot to it, isn't there? So when Paul says in verse 2, that he resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he brings the Corinthians an expansive and breathtaking message that is all centred around Jesus. And he brings it in humility, in selflessness, and in self-sacrifice for the sake of others. But he is still himself. And it will take all of the diversity of gifts and styles and personalities in the church, whether in Corinth or at Trinity Aldgate today, serving alongside one another in unity in order to fully express and to fully embody this message. Let's keep moving. I've spent a long while in these first five verses, but that's because of how crucial they are to the rest. So I'll move a bit faster now. This next section I've titled pseudo-spirituality, that is, fake spirituality or pretend spirituality. When I was first trying to understand verses six to eight, I read them in the same serious tone as I had been reading the rest. And so I started thinking, oh good, there actually is some special wisdom that I can advance to. Even better, it's for my glory. And it's something that others will need me for. And it sets me over them, even the rulers of this world. This is so appealing. But it's dangerous. I eventually realized that this makes no sense. Paul is suddenly using all of the terms and the ideas that he has just labored so hard to debunk. The clues are subtle, but I actually think he's sending up the Corinthians. He's making fun of the spirituality that they want to believe in. One that is superior. One that is puffed up and presumptuous. This would have suited a Corinthian just fine. Now, we're Australians, so I think we know all about taking the mickey out of someone. We know that it can be done in a cruel way, but that's not what's meant here. Because I think, actually, we do this most often to friends, to people we love and respect. It's actually a gentle way of helping somebody to deflate their self-importance. It helps them to stop and reflect on what they're saying or thinking and realize maybe it's a bit ridiculous. That's what it did here for me. Now, I was caught off guard, and that's the point. Because when I realized uh, how verses 6 to 8 seem to be the very opposite of everything we've just explored, especially in verse 2, I was rebuked. That's what Paul wants. These ideas might attract me, but they are not attracting the spirit-filled part of me. The biggest giveaway is verse 8. 
It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This sounds a little bit to me like the notorious political cop-out. I think pretty much every politician at some point in their career steps up to the microphone to say, mistakes were made, but not by me. The Corinthians want to believe that such is their wisdom and maturity, that if they had been there that day, they would not have crucified Jesus. This is such a dangerous attitude. Paul wants us to know that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll actually hang your head in shame because you know that if you had been there that day, you would have. We would have crucified the Lord of glory. So what sorts of things can give you a puffed up sense of your own spirituality? What ideas about spirituality are you almost subconsciously attracted to? I'm going to describe a couple of extremes. They are massive generalizations, but you'll recognize them. On one end of the spectrum, we have studies and training. It's people who have spent lots of time in ministry and lots of time studying. They're rigorous students who love in-depth Bible studies. They're well-read, they're articulate, They're often good at explaining complex, difficult theological concepts. This type of person can help us to know God with our mind, and we need that. Up the other end of the spectrum, we've got a certain type of spiritual sensitivity. That is, people who think they have a particularly acute ear for what God is saying directly to them. They feel, they feel readily and deeply. Their relationship with God is passionate and immediate. They can help us to know and respond to God emotionally. And we need that too. So these things aren't bad. Actually, they can be great blessings. But neither of them make a person spiritual. They aren't enough on their own. And it's so easy for either side of this spectrum to look down upon the other. The huge danger in doing that is that according to this passage, neither of these things are primary to what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at Paul's example of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and we've thought a bit about a fake, a pseudo-spirituality So, it's time now to turn to the real thing. The next section is about authentic spirituality. And by this, I don't mean a spirituality that just feels real to you. I mean a spirituality that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul calls out the sort of obvious problem, verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Some have thought this talks about heaven, things that are to come. But Paul's picking up here on Isaiah 64, which actually speaks about God coming down from heaven to make His name known, to act on behalf of His people and to deal with their sin. It's talking about the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, who is crucified for us. But who can understand such things? Verse 10 and 11 
tells us these things are God's thoughts hidden deep within him. We can't see it, we can't hear it, or understand it by any usual means. Before I became a Christian, uh, my best mate in high school and uni, uh, he was a Bible-believing evangelical and a smart guy. He's got a PhD in astrophysics and he spends his time studying the origins of the universe now. We locked horns over this faith stuff for years and eventually there were no more intellectual barriers to Christianity for me. This guy had exhausted every possible objection comprehensively. But I still didn't really understand. It wasn't until years later that God's Spirit would strip all of that back and help me to see that it's really all about His Son, Jesus Christ, and what Jesus has done, especially His crucifixion. When did all of that fall into place for you? And perhaps more importantly, how did it fall into place for you? How did something so foolish, how did such nonsense suddenly start making sense? Another friend of mine is a fan of Ben Shapiro. I don't follow the guy, but apparently he's a guy to know. He's a smart, edgy social critic and columnist with a popular uh, podcast and radio show. A couple of weeks ago, Shapiro hosted Ravi Zacharias, the renowned Christian apologist, on his show. Here we are. Look at these handsome gentlemen. And my friend is so frustrated. Why? Because Shapiro spend an hour grilling this guy, and they have really nice exchange, but Shapiro is still not a Christian. She doesn't get it. How can someone so wise, who understands so much about the world, who she respects so much, not see the truth? It could be precisely because he knows so much. It could be that if he instead realised he knows nothing, Then, verse 12, he might receive the Spirit who is from God so that he may understand what God has freely given him. The sharpest minds cannot understand it because it's a plan that is conceived in the depths of the mind of God. But, continuing on in verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts? except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. So for any one of us to know and to live what is supposed to be an inaccessible truth, God must fill us with His Holy Spirit. Let's put it differently. Let's cast it in terms of the question I raised earlier. How do you recognise someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit? It's actually deceptively simple, isn't it? It is anyone who knows Paul's testimony about God, Jesus Christ crucified. Anyone who embodies the humility, the selflessness and the sacrifice that points others to Jesus. This is Christian spirituality. There's nothing else required. You might have degrees or training or more notes scribbled in your Bible than there is Bible. And that might give you 
penetrating insights into God's Word and it might make you a really good fit for teaching ministries. Praise God for this gift to the church. But it doesn't make you more spiritual. You might hear a word from God and worship with arms lifted high, almost moved by the presence of God amongst us as we gather. And again, praise God for these rich expressions of His power and His presence. But it doesn't make you more spiritual. Remember, these are caricatures, but the point is, let's not be puffed up by such things. Rather, let's remember that in anyone at all who has understood and who embodies what Jesus has done, God dwells mightily by His Spirit. One of the implications of this is that we must never set ourselves over against anyone who is filled with God's Spirit. At the most basic and most important level, there is no hierarchy of spirituality in the church. I think with all the work we've done so far, the following verses actually make a lot of sense. So I'm just going to read them again for you. Starting from verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Then we come to verse 15. And the person with the Spirit is compared here with the person without the Spirit from verse 14. And I think this will protect us from a few ways we can misread verse 15. It says that uh, this person, the Spirit, makes judgments about all things. Now, this isn't saying the Holy Spirit qualifies every individual Christian to comment with authority on everything from the policy settings of global financial institutions to the most optimal human diet to the mating rituals of the African antelope. It's just not that kind of thing. That doesn't mean you don't have the Holy Spirit. What it's saying is that people with the Spirit can perceive not only the non-spiritual realities of the world, but the spiritual ones as well. And you already get the next bit, I think. It's that family member who thinks your faith is just a phase and they're waiting for you to grow out of it. It's that friend who is annoyed that you won't give up just one Sunday morning at church to catch up with them for brunch. It's that colleague who thinks the Bible is nonsense or even offensive. But to this, Paul writes, verse 15, the person with the Spirit is not subject to merely human judgments. Verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul here uses the collective we, and I think it's pretty important. Where does the mind of Christ dwell? Well, in the body of Christ, of course, which is the church. So, It's not me. 
this, this here is not the body of Christ, I'm afraid. Uh, and that means that I am not a self-sufficient authority unto myself. It's only as I find my place in the church, as it serves and glorifies Jesus Christ in the world, it's only in that way that with the church, I possess the mind of Christ. There's no mandate here for one Christian to presume that they might stand over against another in judgment. What is the mind of Christ? It is God's eternal plan for the redemption and renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. It is the church helping each other to know this each and every day and revealing it to the world. It is working together to grow in a Christ-like humility, selflessness and sacrificial service that Jesus has revealed is the very nature of God. What is the mind of Christ? It is nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. <coughs> Mighty Father, give us more of Your Spirit so that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. <clears throat>